I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and a true crime filmmaker. And my co-host, as always, to discuss crime on the continent is Jared Labiskakni, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Uh, please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Search Profiler Africa. We're like super close to being over the edge of, 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 of like um, being of hitting some targets we've been aiming for. So um, please do listen on, the, on YouTube. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Please share your favorite link. You can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. Questions, suggestions, we love them. You can also email us on profilerafricainfo at gmail.com. Um, we do put up um, various things on the social media pages when we have it to um, kind of that lines up with the cases that we're discussing, so check it out. Um, okay, so that's that. Now, it's nice to be back. Um, sorry we had a week break. We get those uh, periods, unfortunately, where um, we're just really busy. And it's just been a really busy few weeks, hasn't it? Has it not, Jared? It has been very busy. Um, I mean, Jared is becoming so super popular <laughs> now that he's an award-winning, folks. Yes, award-winning author. Tell us a little bit about your award, Jared. Well, um, so book number one uh, was entered into the South African Book Association or South African Book Awards, um, which is in the adult non-fiction category. I had a bit of a fright when I heard adult non-fiction because I thought that meant something completely else. But it just means big people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it, it had previously been entered into the, I think, Sunday Times Literary Awards as, you know, one of the finalists and didn't, didn't get anywhere. Uh, so I wasn't really kind of putting too much hope on this. And it was narrowed down. And then I think last week they announced that it was the winner of the adult um, non-fiction Book Awards. So it wasn't just competing against true crime. It was competing against, like, there was a cookbook and I think a few other books that were there. So, yeah, so quite chuffed. Congratulations. And it's, it, and it's one thing that's nice. They, they say it's based on, uh, I think it's book sales or what booksellers like to sell. Or, you know, so it's kind of like not just purely on numbers, I think. it's Anyway, but so, yeah, so quite chuffed, actually. Well, Jared, I think it's great. There is nothing like being kind of acknowledged for the hard work that you put into things, is there? Yeah. Um, w trophy cabinet. Today we are actually, for the first time, recording um, the episode in, in Jared's new house. The house. We have, we've recorded previous episodes in Jared's old other house, your previous house, but this is the first time in your new house. And now that you're, you're in the new house and you're winning awards, there's going to need to be a trophy cabinet <laughs> in here somewhere. Have you thought about I it? I don't think I actually get like a little trophy or anything for that book award. Oh, don't you get a trophy? I don't think so. Okay. A voucher. At least a nice voucher. 
the the grand total prize of five thousand rand. Oh, okay. So that's three tanks of petrol hey. on a good day. Well, you can't turn your nose up at it, can you? Um, and the acknowledgement of peers and industry professionals and um, readers, which is wonderful. So congratulations there. You also recently did um, Nicole's book launch with her. You yeah. did that event in Pretoria, which you hosted. How did that go? Two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I mean, she had, I think, 90 people who had pre-signed up. You know, not everybody, you know, necessarily RSVPs to come to these things. And I think between like six, definitely, it felt like 60 to 90 people. They actually had, couldn't have it in the exclusive books in Brooklyn. They actually had to have, have it in like a little open section. So a lot of really great people, interested fans. The lot, the line for people to sign a book, you know, was like long. Uh, so I think we were there for an hour afterwards. So it's quite fun because I got to interview her and ask her questions. And obviously, I know the case itself that she wrote about in that book. So it's quite a nice chat. And yeah, a lot of happy, happy, happy. There, of course, if readers. you if you're not if you're not aware of who we're talking about, we're talking about Nicole Engelbrecht, who does the True Crime South Africa podcast, and who recently published um, her first book, which is. Uh, around the Monet Haramsa um, sword killer case mm. where he came to school and um, tried to commit you know, a, a school massacre, basically. Managed to kill one person. Didn't really kind of live up to his expectations, but um, certainly a really interesting read and a really interesting case, especially in the context of the fact that Mornay is now released on bail and mm. walking the streets of Krugersdorp. Since March 2022. Um, hopefully not bumping into... Um, any family members of, of victims. Or victims who survived. Or victims who survived, exactly. Um, what else has been up for Jared? I know that you've been, like I said, like I said, we struggled last week to get an episode out just because we've both been so busy. Um, mm. We've been wrapping up shooting on crime series for the year. Um, what else have you been up to? I know that tomorrow you've got uh, your own book, book signing, book yeah. launch. Your Wait. book launch tomorrow, is Wednesday, it? Wednesday, 30 November, exclusive books Brooklyn in Pretoria um, yeah so basically what I was you know same place that I was with Nicole a couple of weeks ago and um, yeah I'll be there to obviously promote Profiler Diaries 2 so having a bit of a chat I'll be interviewed and then sign some books um, how do people get along there can people just come along? Or? Yes, if you look on my Twitter, there's the details about it. They do like it when people RSVP. They, they can get a feel for how many people mm. are coming. And, of course, if you can't pitch up for whatever reason, that you don't have to worry about that. But um, you can just pitch up, but it's always nice if people do RSVP, then they just know whether they need to shift it from inside the bookstore to a little smaller, a bigger place outside. But, yeah, and that's, I think, 5.30 for 6 p.m. exclusive books, Brooklyn, Pretoria. Brooklyn. So get along, because that is tomorrow. If you're, I mean, you, if you're listening to the podcast <laughs> on any other day than the 29th of November, then um, it's uh, not tomorrow. But um, <laughs> if you get the opportunity, get along to that Wednesday, the 30th of November. Um, Gerard at Brooklyn in Pretoria. So that's exciting. Also last week you had the uh, threat assessment conference that mm. you played a big part in. Tell us about that. What was that and what went down? Yeah, so I think as a lot of you might know, my, my current career since about 2016 when I left the police was m really looking at how to prevent violent acts or prevent things from becoming to the level of a violent act. Uh, which is basically the concept of threat assessment and I kind of do that primarily in the workplace environment for corporates and schools etc um, and we started in 2019 the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals as one in the US which was the first one uh, then the Canadians started the Canadian Association of Threat Assessment Professionals then the Europeans started one then Asia Pacific region APATAP and then they will be pushing us for many years to start the African one so 2019 we started the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals AFATAP 
um, and basically to promote the guide year threat assessment. So it covers anything from school violence to workplace violence to mass shooters to stalking to domestic violence, threatening behavior, you know, people taking out protection orders. Uh, that's kind of the spectrum of the type of things that are covered in the association and that we have talks about. But we had our first in-person conference, um, yeah, this last week, Monday and Tuesday, 21 and 22 November. We obviously, because of COVID, we would have had a live one, but um, that kind of railroaded that. So last year, 2021, we had an online conference. So this t this year was the first in person, and again, we had people talking about uh, a case study where the, they prevented a mass shooting taking place, which is pretty cool. And that's what third assessment's about: preventing this stuff from happening. Um, I spoke about the case we're going to be talking about today. We had another person, a colonel from the police, speaking about that w case many years ago in Wool down in Durban, primarily, where Woolworths had explosive devices going off in some of their shops, and at the the what's it the what's it Raceway Gravel Gravel Racecourse where the Durban July is, mm -hmm. and other businesses, and that was all terrorism related, all linked to each other. Um, so that was interesting to see what's going on. We had people talking about stalking, uh, threat assessment teams, um, a whole spectrum of stuff. Um, and that, yes, yeah, so we had local international speakers. And that was really fun and stressful to organize, but yeah, it went down very well. Great. Well, congrats. Like, um, it's so nice to see that you are thriving. Yeah. You know? Been um, busy a couple months. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully it continues kind of onward and upward. Um, I had an interesting week, a couple of weeks. I ended up. Um, the most interesting thing that I did in the last couple of weeks was go to the mortuary there in Hillbrow to meet with a gentleman by the name of Lawrence, who's the entomologist there. And I got to experience that place. And um, it's crazy. Mm. It's crazy town. Now, I, I, you know, I've been trying to kind of like just kind of straighten it up in my mind because, you know, it's one thing talking about the world that we talk about on the podcast it's another thing to really kind of get close to it you know and we were there on a day where you know they, there's the multiple autopsies that now this is the mortuary in town where the the bodies that that for those listening Gerard knows this but for you for those listening it this is for uh, unnatural deaths so mm. murders suicides car accidents. car accidents so so people arrive in a fairly bad in a range of states ranging from not so bad to really bad and, um, yeah, it's, it was just such a crazy experience. Mm. I mean, I don't want to be too critical because, you know, I understand that everything in South Africa is kind of stretched, isn't it? But it just was maybe mo the most traumatizing <laughs> thing I've done in a long time. Not just seeing a refrigerator full of, of recently deceased people, um, but just being in that building. You know, I was in the one room, which was the skeleton, which is like their the, the skeleton closet, where you stand in a room and you're sub surrounded by like 200 skele human skeletons. Mm. It's just bizarre. Um, and the architecture of the building, it's kind of this old school it building in town that's kind of falling apart a bit. Do you know what it originally was? A uh, maternity hospital. Yes, I heard a maternity hospital, for, but for non-whites. Apparently. Yeah, I'm sure yeah it was apparently for non-whites um, back in the apartheid days. So next door to the mortuary is part of the hospital, which has apparently been gutted and taken apart, which is apparently... Now, Lawrence, who's the entomologist there, said that the building next door is spooky, and I don't <laughs> think Lawrence spooks very easily, easily yeah. considering the things that he sees and does on a daily basis. So if Lawrence is saying it's spooky, it mm. must be off the chart spooky. But, yeah, just to see how it works and to see bodies coming in, to, to see them kind of piled up and to understand how thin resources are stretched, even mm. there, for example. 
um, it's it's not just a terrifying environment, but just the whole context of the place and what it kind of just what it means in the whole how it fits into the you know law and order and people dying and mm. and being murdered and coming and going. Uh, yeah, again, I, I'm not being very eloquent about it because I still I don't think I've wrapped my head around it entirely. But to me, it's kind of what hell would be like if you mm. imagine hell, and um, and the people work there every day. And there's an people that go job. there every day, and this is it. Kind of feels like it's the like like the, the like the tumor, and like if if South Africa's sick, you know. Mm. It feels like a place like that is like one of the tumors, mm. you know what I mean? Where you just kind of, where it's just an intense kind of coagulation of all the bad things in mm. South Africa, and it was just terrifying. So that was interesting. Um, anything else that's been on your radar? Uh, so yeah, so last Thursday, Friday, after the conference we just spoke about, yes. um, we had an amazing guy who actually came out for the conference, and I asked him if he would do some training afterwards. Um, Dr. Stephen Hart. Now, Stephen is from Canada. And for many of you who ever read about psychopaths, you might have heard of a guy called Dr. Robert Hare, who's also a Canadian uh, psychologist. And Robert Hare has written books such as There's One Snakes in Suits, which you can get like at exclusive books, which is about psychopaths in the workplace. And that was quite a well-known book. And I think he wrote another book about psychopaths also for the general population to read called, I think, Without Conscience. And Robert is kind of like the, the, the godfather of modern psycho psychopathy or psychopath as a, as a concept. And he developed a couple of years ago something called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, PCL, PCLR, which is the golden standard for assessing whether someone is a psychopath. And Stephen Hart, the guy who was out here for the conference, actually helped, worked on that development of the PCLR back, was it, I think, in the 80s, whenever. So he's, you know, obviously intimate understanding of the tool and he then Stephen then also developed the, sh the screening version of the PCLR so Stephen agreed to give, give some training to so a bunch of psychologists last week Thursday and Friday about the assessment of psychopaths using these two particular tools so that was just an amazing opportunity um, I mean Stephen's just an amazingly knowledgeable guy wonderful person great trainer. I've known him for many years he actually came out when I was in the police and gave us training for eight days on these various tools not the PCLR but other tools that we use to assess you know, stalking risk, domestic violence risk, um, to, I mean, you name it, sexual violence risk, etc. Mm -hmm. So he was out doing that. So that was really a great opportunity to sit in that room for two days, be trained, obviously, in this particular instrument, which is, as I said, the most widely used instrument for assessing if you're a psychopath. Um, and, um, yeah, to, to get that accredited training and just to spend those two days with him, besides the, th the stuff that he presented at the conference on the Monday and Tuesday. So that was very interesting. And so we had about 14 psychologists. It was open to any psychologists. You know, I, I thought we would have got a lot more, but I suppose it's quite a unique, you know, forensic psychology is still a very underdeveloped concept mm. in South Africa, you know. Which you know. is a word to the wise out there, especially if you're young and kind of a approaching your studies or thinking mm -hmm. about a career path and you have an interest in true crime that's found you and you found your way to this podcast then um yeah it just goes to show that there's opportunity there you mm -hmm. know um there's space for you potentially what are one or two of the key indicators of a psychopath what are like the primary uh, morning signs well i mean obviously to be called a psychopath it, it's kind of has to span your life history you can't just have done something very horrible now as an adult and, oh, that person's a psychopath. We're very quick to say that, but I think we're quick to say that about many things. Oh, he's crazy. He's schizophrenic. It's this or that. Look, but some of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> and that's typically what we find. Oh, I've dated one of those. You probably haven't, but um, you might have dated not a nice person. doesn't mean they're a psychopath. But it's a sort of, 
this um, glib superficialness, lack of empathy, um, lack of remorse are the, are the key aspects. Um, it's that state of mind where you just we don't care about your behavior and the impact upon other people. And if they're going to suffer because of your actions, it's not your problem. Um, so those are probably the, the most central aspect about it. You know, superficialness, glib, shallow emotions, uh, no remorse for what you've done, um, lack of empathy uh, is probably the central aspect. And then you get other bits and pieces about, you know, certain behaviors that you engage in. But that's really what, and it's a lifelong thing. You can't just, like I said, because you're behaving, and it has to be across different contexts. Yeah. I mean, you might be absolutely ruthless in the business environment. You know, don't give a damn that you've screwed someone out of a deal. Um, you know, it's crying Z, but you're a good person at home and other aspects, and you wouldn't be regarded as a psychopath because it has to sort of cut across all aspects of your life in different contexts, but also, his and historically, it has to be present from really from a youngish age. You start to see features of that kind of attitude and life, life view uh, is present. Does his work in assessment spill into any kind of thinking around treatment? Well, again, that's the big question. Do psycho can psychopaths be treated? Often it's looked at that any personality disorder, like psych being a psychopath, um, it's not really something that's treatable. You might be able to mitigate some of the behaviors, but will you ever not be a psychopath or not have a borderline personality disorder or a narcissistic personality disorder? You'll never not have it. It, it might just fizzle a little bit as you get into your sort of 50s and 60s, but the attitude, the view of the world will still be present. So we don't typically talk about treating such individuals, but maybe just mitigating their behavior to some degree. Okay. Does every psychopath need to be removed from society? No. I mean, you can be a psychopath and not break the laws. You're just not a very nice person, you know. Uh, you'll sleep with your neighbor's wife and... You know, so things that aren't per se illegal, but you're not a nice human being. So definitely when we talk about it, and they also say these things expect on a spectrum. So we all might have elements of this behavior, maybe in certain contexts or in a certain phase we went through. Um, but as you get sort of the boundaries, you, you get to the area where we start to call you an, a diagnosable disorder of the personality. That's always going to be you know, a negative counterproductive thing. But we have elements of this, all of us, to greater or lesser degrees of probably most of the aspects of personality disorders. I guess we should never forget that any psychological disorder, until you act upon it in a way that is kind of counter to the norms and rules of society, then you are not a criminal, are you? So yeah, look, I mean, even something like a pedophile, which not is not a, a personality yeah. disorder, you know, you can be diagnosed as a pedophile but have never touched a child. A lot of psychologists don't even realize that because mm -hmm. the criteria would say, you know, only once you've, you know, you can have the thoughts and fantasies and urges to of sexual behavior with prepubescent children. So thoughts and fantasies are in your mind. So you might at home, to put it very plainly, masturbate about a 12-year-old, 10-year-old kid um, until you're going out and, for example, downloading child pornography or you try and approach a child or you try and act out on it in a way that starts to contravene the laws, or if it causes you anxiety and uncomfort about these urges, then we talk about the diagnosis of that problem. Mm -hmm. But you can get, for example, a, a guy who comes to a psychologist and says, please, I have these urges, I know they're wrong, but uh, and can you help me deal with them? Uh, you, you can still diagnose that person as a pedophile, it just doesn't mean that he's gone and actually stepped over the boundaries of doing something that would make it him engage in criminal activity. You're always at risk, of course, if you have those interests that one day 
circumstances might arrive and you might end up doing something. So there's always having the diagnosis is always a risk factor for acting upon it. But it's not automatic that, you know, you will go and do something. I wonder if in countries where there are registers for kind of sex offenders or what have you, if a diagnosis of pedophilia kind of puts you on any on any mm. lists or again, would it have to be, you'd have to make the step into yeah. downloading child pornography or, or, yeah. or enacting. So, so more likely behavior. typically to get on these registers, you have to have been convicted of a crime yeah. of that nature. But also bear in mind, and sorry, we're getting a bit of a deep dive, is that you can have molested a child but not meet the criteria for being a pedophile. If it's a once-off offense, oh. they haven't got evidence of the, you know, typically it has to be present for longer than six months, the interest and the attitude, um, you know, uh, the thoughts, the fantasies. So typically these registers are not, are you a pedophile, but rather have you sexually offended against a child? Yeah and you're convicted, then you might, then you would typically, in those jurisdictions that have registers, be added to whatever register there is available. And that might not be a publicly accessible register. Uh, in South Africa, that's not publicly, you can't go and check who's on the sex offenses register. Schools can, you know, someone who's applying for a job, they can go ask if this person is on the register. Of course, the register doesn't go and get backdated. So from the moment it is implemented, you, you know, nobody who was an offender prior to that date, to my knowledge, you can't go backdate and add those people onto the register. Um, so it's not a guarantee that the person you, you know, if someone's on the reg not on the register, that they're good to go. Mm -hmm. um, it just might also mean you're not being caught or you were convicted prior to the implementation of the register. Okay. Well, let's park that conversation. Let's find, I'm sure, I know that there is a case that you've mm. been involved in and maybe we can line that up for a future episode when it's appropriate to do so because yeah. I know it's something that you're busy with even now. Um, but maybe we can park this conversation mm. for uh, and discuss it around a case because I think there's a lot to discuss mm. there. Um, all right, great. Well, the other thing we'll do is Lawrence Hill, the um, entomologist who I mentioned earlier from... Um, from downtown i did ask him to come on the podcast so that'll be cool we can talk about um bugs and um the yeah, role crime, they play in justice crime busting bugs basically bugs for justice exactly um all right and so we've got so so we got so many great ideas for episodes lined up in the future today though we're going to go back into well actually a case that is very resonant today always very resident resonant in South Africa because of the social and political and cultural dynamics of the country. Um, but more and more kind of, I think, relevant to the age that we're in, where we're seeing once again the kind of polarization of people to the left and to the right of their belief systems. Um, and so we're going to be discussing a case that Gerard was involved in and that, like he said, he presented last week at the Threat Assessment Conference, which is to do with a man who, um, yeah, had quite staunch right-wing beliefs and, uh, and then some. So, Gerard, do you want to kind of contextualize and set the scene for our discussion today? Yeah, so a lot of people in South Africa, if you say, do you think we have a problem with terrorism? They'll go, no, we don't. You know, everybody loves South Africa. We're friends with every dodgy person in the world. The, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, the, and the Americans, and you know, non-dodgy people too. Um, you know, everybody loves South Africa. I mean, Nelson Mandela would, would sit and chat with Yasser Arafat is just as much as he would chat with the Queen and, and Barack Obama, whoever, whoever and et cetera. Um, so we have this illusion that terrorism is not an issue in South Africa that we have to worry about. You know, oh, it's happening in Mozambique, you know, up north in Pemba more recently. We see this and that happening in other parts of Africa, but we're safe. Well, we're not. And until you start to speak to the right people, you kind of realize, actually, not only have we, yes, for a long time been like a, 
a place to lay low for criminal for terrorists like we, the the so-called white widow who was involved in the Kenya mall attack had been hanging around in South Africa for a while prior to that. There was this recent Israeli group yeah. caught just yeah. up the road here. Yeah, absolutely. So we haven't just been a passive place for them to come and hang out and hide out and transfer money, etc., which we maybe thought gave us some level of protection. There have been active terrorist attacks. Um, you know, as I said, the, the, the case of Woolworths, as you mentioned earlier, a couple of years ago, where devices were going off in Woolworths, in Durban, and the the Durban July uh, and other little businesses, those were all related to terrorism extortion, terrorist funding. And the companies, these companies didn't pay the extortion amounts. Um, and these people, and that, I mean, proper terrorism. I'm not saying just guys who wanted to engage in extortion and then plant bombs are terrorists. I'm talking about real terrorism as per the definition where you are part of an organization trying to overthrow the government, et cetera, et cetera, proper terrorism. And those were terrorism funding related activities. You know, then they, kick down that door and arrest that bunch of people and they find a guy in the basement who's been kidnapped for extortion. So terrorism funding and terrorism act, active actions I mean, have in South Africa. We think back to the so-called Burumach, early 2000s, where you had you know, a bunch of right-wing Afrikaans guys being arrested for bombs that were planted. I think one was in Soweto that went off and killed a lady, a couple of bridges down on the KZN, and they arrested a big group of people who spent, I think, a 10-year-long trial. Um, that's right-wing terrorism. So, you know, we've got the sort of more ISIS type of terrorism that you've been seeing in other parts of the world, concerned, but also the right-wing terrorism uh, is also concerned. Then you also kind of get to the left-hand spectrum where things are happening that you kind of wonder, is that not also a potential terrorism risk? Um, but terrorism isn't just when there's a riot. So we saw that the July riots in predominantly KZN, uh, was it last year, I think? Yes. Um, and people, oh, that's terrorism. No, because it wasn't with the intention of sort of trying to overthrow the, the democratically elected government. So it's, it's, I hear what you're saying. Maybe we should regard that as terrorism, but it doesn't actually fit our current definition. So much has happened in the last few years. It's amazing how hard it is to kind of place things, isn't it? Um, so what you're saying is there actually are more cases that, you know, this is an ongoing problem, an issue and reality in South Africa. Um, just maybe we're not that kind of aware of it in the mainstream kind of media space. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, I mean, think about it. We had three weeks ago in Santon, there was the American government released this sort of terror warning that on yes. this weekend uh, in Santon, the San downtown Santon, yeah. there's a risk of a you know stay away from gatherings because the risk of a high risk of a mass attacks. Um, and when that is when we had actually the gay pride march was taking place that weekend. Um, yeah. And the government then confirmed, our government is very angry because the U.S. government just released this uh, half an hour before they released it onto their website. They cut me, hey, South African government, we're going to do this. And it actually didn't interfere with existing counter-terrorism investigations. And they'd actually engaged, they, they knew about this group, the South African government, and they engaged in disruptive activities. But the Americans blasting it all over kind of over the media kind of did create a bit of an international incident in that sense but that again that was a real credible threat do we know who that group is um not I, i'm sure they do um yeah. specifically it, w it would have been just for lack of a better description kind of these sort of isis type of inspired extremist um groups that are i mean there's lots of them it's look i mean call me paranoid okay i think i certainly take 
into account when I think about things these days, how the last couple of years has affected my perspective on things because I'm so kind of involved in crime stories and crime content and anything from terrorism to murder. But um, I am of the opinion that South Africa is, I think state capture kind of under understates it. It feels like South Africa is pretty much run by organized crime mm. these days. And um, so, of course, this uh, I would consider South African to be South Africa to be a paradise for people who are looking to hide, um, um, you know, cruel intentions. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, am I being paranoid? A bit paranoid here. Um, or, or do you think no. I'm placing I my <laughs> kind of perception at reasonably the right place? I, I think we do make it easy for organized crime to thrive. And, you know, not all, not organized crime. Organized crime isn't automatically, of course, terrorist-related, but some terrorism-related activities involve organized crime. Um, like I said, yeah. you know, running an a kidnapping extortion racket, which is aimed at funding terrorism, is kind of organized crime mixed with, the, for the purposes of terrorism. Um, so, yes, unfortunately, yeah. our law enforcement, uh, yes. A large part of the reason that the lights don't come on a little bit easier is because if you're the guy who is trying to put in place a security team to stop cable thefts happening, for example, then somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, buddy. Introduce us to Harry Johannes Knussen. Yeah. So this was a case. I mean, very few people know about this case. I, I actually didn't know about it until the, I was asked by the prosecutor if I can assist recently. But this actually dates back to 2019. So I guess the fact that it was sort of literally this time, Black Friday was the date of this terrorist plan, terrorist attack in 2019. And we just had Black Friday, what, last Friday. So, but of course, that was just before COVID really struck. So a lot of this case really, I guess, didn't get the, the necessary attention, probably because we had the pandemic already appearing in China in a few days' time back in 2019. Um, so I kind of vaguely heard of, remembered it when the prosecutor spoke to me about it. Christmas time is a time for crazy racists in South Africa, okay? There was the guy on the beach saying the K-word like an idiot. Oh. Then there was the there was Penny Sparrow a few years back was Christmas as well. Oh, was and it? now there's just been this woman... I just got played this clip yesterday, if yes, you haven't heard it, with this rant as well. Um, I don't know what the racists, I don't know what Christmas does to the racists, but it's, it gets them on their social media. If you're a racist and you have a cell phone, just put it aside for Christmas. Carry on, Jared. <laughs> so anyway, so the, to start sort of at the back and then work our, our way backwards, um, literally I think it was the 28th of November, the Crimes Against the State Unit of the Hawks, um, DPCI, uh, arrest Harry Knussen in Middleburg, Whitbank, sorry, in Mpumalanga province. It's about an hour and a half outside of Pretoria towards the east. Um, and he was arrested at the time for contravening the Pokhtatara Act, which is the Protection of Constitutional Democracy Against Terrorism and Related Activities Act, um, for basically planning to carry out a terrorist attack and soliciting support 
for an entity engaged in terrorist activity. Uh, so he gets arrested where he's staying. He lived at his girlfriend's house. And at the same time, they hit some houses in Pretoria to execute search warrants. And about a day later, they also end up arresting three of his co-conspirators. Uh, Rihanna Haymans, who is 53, er Eric Abrams, 54, and Errol Abrams, 59. Now, now our main focus of today, old Harry Knussen, was, I think, uh, 60 at the time when he was arrested. So not a young, not a young crowd. And that, so yeah, so that was kind of what happened, uh, basically thwarting their plans to implement their attack basically the next day. So what, what kind of led to this arrest? Well, kind of from about December 2018, so almost a year before the arrest, um, across the country, Harry Knusser would travel to various places recruiting and promoting his sort of racist rhetoric uh, and trying to get people to join his organization. So his organization was called the Crusaders, or the National Christian Resistance Movement. Um, and he would go and have meetings where, as I said, he would, people would be invited, and they would just you know, sign up for his little WhatsApp groups, that he would have various groups. And then he would try and start up little cells. So he'd say to these people, don't you want to start up a cell? You know, you are now Captain Fun Sale of the East Rand cell, and it's your job to recruit more people. Uh, etc. So it kind of gave everybody's military ranks. Of course, he gave himself the rank of a general or first knight. Um, so again, blending this sort of religious kind of theme to what he's saying, along with sort of just general racist rhetoric. Um, you know, God gave Africa to white people to look after and fix and take care of, or specifically sub-Saharan uh, Africa. Okay. Um, and then he started to sort of post face videos on Facebook until his Facebook was shut down, and then he would basically put these little videos on his YouTube, uh, sorry, um, uh, WhatsApp groups uh, and voice voice notes and typed messages where he kind of continued to promote and inspire this rhetoric. I hope that's not true because I really don't <laughs> want the responsibility. Thanks. <laughs> and basically, you know, the plan was we're going to use violence. We're going to take back the country. We've got a plan. He called it an attack plan. Um, and he kind of was very critical of other right wing groups saying you're all a bunch of preppers, basically. You know, you're just preparing for something to go wrong, and then you all run off to a farm somewhere where you've reserved your little section of your plot on the farm, and you're all going to literally lager around and wait to the chaos to end and protect yourself. And he said, you know, you're, a, you're, you're preppers. That's all you are. You know, you have, you're, you're tr I mean, even, he says, trying to negotiate and get political parties, we're never going to win. He says the laws in the country weren't written f with the white man in mind. It's against the white man. So trying to play the, the game of politics and anything else short of basically a violent revolution, you're just lying to people, wasting their time, taking their money, because you know, a lot of these organizations try to get you to pay 100 rand a month towards the organization. Uh, and he was like, I have a plan. I have a tech plan. We're going to do something. You know, God says we must do something and join my organization. I don't charge you any money, unlike these other groups. So he, he really pissed off <laughs> a lot of the right-wing groups who basically then themselves were very critical of him um, and, and what he was trying to achieve. Sure, but how kind of sophisticated was his, was, was his, were his efforts? I mean, how clued up on social media was he? Because I, I find it interesting. I often use this as kind of an example of how the world has changed and why maybe we're seeing the right wing especially you know the kind of right wing ideas you know in a p 
post-World War II period. You know, obviously after, I think that boomer mm. and that war generation is dying off and there's not enough kind of societal memory of how bad it is when we're so polarized and we're seeing these right-wing ideologies kind of rise up all over the world, whether it's Donald mm. Trump or whether it's, even I think what's, you know, the kind of leadership <coughs> in South Africa you consider to be, you can consider to be in some kind of way, you know. Um, well, I think what they do, and this is typical of these types of groups, that Donald Trump and them was the same thing. You, you touch on issues that are actually relevant to most of us. So most of us, no matter irrespective of your color in this country, you might say, sheesh, the country's not going well. Yes, look at this corruption. Uh, look at, you know, state capture, um, which leads to the, 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 the load-shedding blackouts because they were stealing money and not fixing this and that and the other. We all, justifiably, should be enraged about those issues. Yeah. So they take things that we all nod our heads with when somebody mentions, but he starts to blend it with his own little right-wing rhetoric. Exactly. Um, and for some people, that's a big jump, and they think, no, bugger that. And some people, it's not such a big jump. Yeah. So you kind of mix it in with the general head-nodding stuff, but then you slowly mix in your own brand of, you know, and God, God, God. Oh, so hate. a lot of people oh, are religious oh, for various difference. reasons. And now you kind of say, and God says, and, and, and. So you kind of slowly twist and twist and twist and twist, blending things that we might all have some level of agreement with, but with then your sort of own ultimate plans and goals of what you want to do. So it's kind of a grooming process of, yeah. and of course, a lot of people go, oh, this is a lot of bullshit, and, and just switch off. And other people kind of listen and think about this a bit longer. And that those are the ones who then, of course, get hooked. hooked What's interesting it. is if, you know, when we were youngsters in the seventies and eighties, if you wake up in the morning one day and you decide I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a Nazi today. I've decided I'm going to be a Nazi. Um, if you wake up that morning and have that thought, by the end of the day, chances are you're not technically much more of a Nazi than you were that morning. Because mm. you know you don't know where the na local Nazi club is. You don't know where they hang out. You know you don't know mm. where they drink coffee in the mornings or have their their meetings once a week. Today. If you wake up in the morning and you want to be, a, you can be a Nazi in 20 minutes. You yeah. can be a member of, of groups. You Absolutely. can be chatting to people in chat rooms. You can be all over the world. You can be a global Nazi within yeah. minutes. Um, and it's amazing. So yeah. the facilitation that the media provides, that's why I'm just curious about, mm. you know, how big of a, did he get a group together here? Yeah. So first, the first issue that you mentioned is very important, your online radicalization. So you can be sitting, never spoken to anybody else about these issues. You start to Google search, Google search. And you'll find all the whole community that was going to be avidly supporting you. So what happens is you start to focus on that little community, which is a supportive environment for these thoughts, at the exclusion of anybody else and talking to anybody else who doesn't have these views to get the balance. And you immerse yourself in an environment where everybody's, yeah, you're right. And A, you feel like you're part of something. For a lot of people who felt like they've been excluded, that's a great thing, whether it's a, a knitting club or a, or a sort of extremist club, you're part of something. Yeah. And because you're not getting this... Uh, there's a certain term with it, I can't think of it now, but you're only getting positive feedback that supports these thoughts. Yeah. So that helps radicalize you. And like you say, you can meet people, chat people, read things, find out places to go, places to hang out, and it just pushes you further down that line, that sort of avenue of radicalization. And you can apply that to so many things Absolutely. in the world today. Anything. And uh, so that's where the that online stuff makes a huge influence. And what he was doing, as I said, he, he ended up building these groups. And I, I think he had... By the end of it, just under a thousand people that were oh. part of the groups. You know, there was they signed they're on the WhatsApp groups, or we later moved over to, I think it was Signal or Telegram, okay. um, and that were and of course then Truth posting social. these things on Facebook. We don't know how many other thousands of people heard about these things on Facebook, but didn't necessarily become part of the WhatsApp group, and 
again, how, how many of these messages weren't sent on to other people who all sit there nodding their heads? I mean, and just coming back to that, you know, a lot of people might feel, well, I'm white because of BEE, I don't get contracts or I've been negatively, I haven't been promoted for 20 years. And again, that's a lot of people, it's a reality for a lot of people. And now you mix that with, so that's again, it's a head nodding movement. You know, I know colleagues in the police who 22 years, m phenomenal cops who haven't been promoted. Um, so you get the head nod from like, yeah, yeah, I haven't been promoted. Yes, my business hasn't been going great because I'm not BEE accredited because I'm a one-man band and I have to now give away half my company or whatever the arguments are. And so you get that head nod, but then you blend it again, like I said, with the, with the sort of racist rhetoric. It's because of, and they're against us. And, and, and it's very easy to get people to nod a bit further and then eventually get sucked into it. It is very human nature to find the other that you can point a finger at for your own challenges and issues isn't it and if you find um, people who commiserate with you that you feel better and now you get these people just pushing it a bit further like you know and making it more radicalized yeah this has always been my point is that you know i don't think that it in south africa it's been race that is kind of that thing that is supercharged in the middle east it's religion that thing that we find that that has been created to kind of point out out that we're different or where we found our differences in other parts of Africa, it's tribal differences. Xenophobia. Um, to me, these are just excuses that people find to um, to create another so that they can point a finger. And what it all really boils down to is what underpins whether it's racism or is human nature. Is mm. that I think we're all kind of inherently selfish and kind of and potential and possibly covet the things that other people have if we don't have them. Yeah. Um, so you know, as opposed to just looking at what the kind of the, the expression of it is, be it racism, be it religious or tribal mm. differences, whatever. When I hope one day we look at just our human nature and just acknowledge the fact that we're actually quite a hateful yeah, <laughs> And I think it's, it's um, whether that's some species. biological, historical thing. I mean, if you think about it, if you're standing in a queue, maybe to, to at a complaints thing to return an item you bought at a shop, and you're in the queue and you can see there's two people behind the counter and let's say I'm an English-speaking person. One of them's Afrikaans-speaking, one of them's English-speaking. Which, which is the one maybe that I'm more likely to hope is going to get to help me when I get to the front of the counter? I'm going to go for the English-speaking person because already language is not an issue. Mm. Lang with language often comes a certain culture and history to that language. You know, if you're an English-speaking person in South Africa, you might say there's certain things, you know, that, that there's common amongst most English-speaking individuals as there would be amongst Afrikaans-speaking people. Or if you're a Zulu person and you see an English person at the front of the counter and, and a Zulu one, you're probably going to hope to speak to the Zulu person. Yeah. Um, so that's, again, this inherent bias we have towards things and people that are similar to us, which I think is just a biological in some degree. But that's also, I guess, the starting point of eventually discriminating against people down the line. Well, exactly. No, I think I hear you. It's where that difficult line is to, to kind of where do you paint the line, but where you go, okay, we acknowledge that we all have certain inherent biases. We're all a little bit racist. We're all a little bit sexist. We're all a little bit whatever. That, you know, how do we as a society get to the point where we can accept that of one another um, and accept that it's just a reality that we live with? There will always be the, the crazy penny sparrows, mm. you know? Penny sparrow, though, doesn't affect our lives on a daily basis, you know what I mean? Um, so, yes, she needs to be put in her place and that kind of behavior needs to be stamped out but we're never going to get rid of it so we have to find a way to accept that this is also a part of human nature it's a part of who we are Dis finding reasons to hate each other is is a part of how we're programmed mm, absolutely all right so basically this guy had a plan so he, as i said he kept on boasting he has an attack plan where everybody else all these other right-wing organizations with their generals and whatever terms 
They're just a bunch of preppers who sit around doing nothing. So his attack plan, now, I'm not saying it's a good attack plan, essentially was that on the um, Black Friday 2019, four days prior to the attack, they would try and poison the water supply to townships, either with literal poison or with E. coli to minimize resistance, you know, soften up the enemy. That's very Project Coast of them. Yeah. Then they would sort of go to various South African National Defense Force bases, uh, secure them, and, and this is his own words, black personnel would be eliminated silently. Uh, entry and exit points to towns would be secured and, and any threat eliminated. Townships would be bombed and set alight with makeshift flamethrowers. Um, the media must be allowed to film this and given free access because that would psychologically disable or destabilize any resistance from black people. So it's the psych psychological operations aspect. Police stations and key points would be secured to prevent infrastructure damage. Black members of the police had to hand in their firearms, equipments, and uniforms and then be dealt with, which, you know, basically means killed. Martial law would be declared. And then any black person that is still alive that has a firearm must surrender to a SANDF uh, base and will be eliminated afterwards, storing their bodies on a heap and set alight to capitalize, in his own words, on the psychological effect thereof. Then any illegal immigrants will be put on buses towards Zimbabwe and Mozambique and on the way there, eliminated by aerial bombing. And then in the initial two days, at least 30 million black people must be eliminated and the world informed that the legal owners of the country, which is white people, have taken it back. That's his own words. And on the second and third day, we'll just some go and, and invade Mozambique and Zimbabwe and take them over. So, so is it a good plan? No, it's a terrible plan. I mean, you would have, yes, you know, um, caused major harm and damage and fear and terror to, you know, and localized. You wouldn't have taken over the country with this because, I mean, the most of the 99% of the country would have said, screw you, asshole, and the military, and the military's not going to roll over and capitulate. The Air Force is not going to roll over and capitulate. So he kind of had this unrealistic belief that all white people are going to lobby behind them and go out into the streets and shoot people and help out, which is like unrealistic. But I have to say, a lot of our SANDF bases don't even have fences and aren't expecting to be attacked. We've seen countless examples in the media over the past year or two of police stations being attacked and their guns being taken. So, so that the, in that sense, there would have been a lot of terror, death at police stations or wherever they attacked and, and firearms stolen. They wouldn't have taken over the country because I think, as I said, the rest of the country would have said, up yours, assholes. You know, we're not, this is not going to work. But you could have caused a lot of damage localized, mm. which is obviously not great for those people who are going to get injured and the country's reputation, etc. So not an effective takeover the country strategy, but an effective strategy to cause a lot of terror and fear and anxiety. Uh, is it would have yeah in that sense and basically he said yeah. that all my little cell groups in your various areas that you stay in like go reconnaissance to your nearest military base or your police station and you have to have your plan in place by October nineteenth okay for execution on the twenty on Black Friday twenty nineteen in November okay I mean it's all a bit nuts isn't it um, okay so so how did the, how did the police cotton on to this plan well it seems that with right wingers. How can I put it? They're not always very bright in the sense, I'm not saying they're stupid, but they're not very bright in the sense of keeping things quiet. Okay. They will put these things, you know, obviously he's posting a lot of these rhetoric videos on social media. Not on this date we're going to do this, but join me, I have an attack plan, we're not going to sit back. That was stuff that was on, as I said, Facebook until it was banned and all other, you know. So very quickly, 
somebody says to the cops, hey, have you guys seen this guy's video? He kind of sounds like he's trying to get together an army and plan an attack. So very we, quickly, they <laughs> is infiltrated by other you know, Afrikaans people who either work for the police or just were informants to in convey information. I, I haven't checked the news today, but with Elon Musk now driving the ship at Twitter, this kind of stuff might be allowed back on Twitter again. Oh, who absolutely. Knows? You never know, because <laughs> things, crazy things are going on there as well. Mm, for sure. But what's interesting is that he also said to people, you know, go and study the Oklahoma bombings. Now, for those of you that might not remember, 19th of April, 95, Timothy McVeigh, an ex-army soldier, parked a trucked homemade bomb, car bomb, laden with explosive devices made from fertilizer and kind of publicly available stuff, and detonated it outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. And if you go onto the internet, you'll see how much damage was done to that sort of eight-story building. It's literally destroyed half of it. It's just no longer there. Um, and he, 168 people died, including... You know, this is from the worst, besides under, in general, the loss of life. 19 children who were in the little crash inside the building. Mm. Uh, and that was one person. So, you know, one person can do a lot of damage if they're motivated. You know, a lot of people can do a lot of damage. But like I said, I don't think he would have successfully taken over the country with this plan. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, there's damage to be done to the building at the time. And obviously the immense tragedy of that incident mm. um, to the people there on the ground. But, I mean, the repercussions of this is that, you know, now in North America or in the USA, we see so much more of, of, of the Timothy McVeigh's. Mm. You, know, you know, he's almost like a champion for a certain belief system Absolutely. now, isn't he? So he's kind of got that yeah. you know, status, status and, and, and has no doubt inspired a lot more people to, to kind of take, to mm. take up some of his belief system. Well, I mean, here you have, you know, Harry Knudsen in South Africa talking about a guy in America. Yeah. Um, well you see that with school shooters. You know, the most frequently referenced mass or school shooter, the most frequently re referenced previous school shooting, which is Columbine, yeah. is the most widely referenced um, mass shooting incident that later subsequent mass shooters refer, refer to in their manifestos. Yeah. So, yes, these things do become heroes for certain people and i or either as examples of what you can do but also as look at look what this great hero did and you kind of see that almost like you said earlier coming into this whole trump thing with the the insurrection on six what sixth of january yeah. a year or two ago you know if you start to listen to the hearings and what these other groups of people there had in terms of their beliefs and philosophies it was actually a coup attempt yeah. that's not just that's not just media propaganda you know if that if, if that happened anywhere in the world, we would happily say, oh, that was an attempted coup. Absolutely. Um, and, and so the sort of whole right-wing sentiment, again, playing on people's anxieties and fears, pushing it a bit further. Some people will fall away and say, oh, you guys are going too far for me, but a lot of people won't. Um, so he also ref referenced, quite interestingly, he said um, he would give examples of, of what he, and I'm quoting now, a black man and his son who shot and killed numerous people in Los Angeles in the USA by driving around and randomly shooting people from the car, close quote. And that that would have the psychological effect that people would be too scared to leave their houses. Now, the, I think what they're actually referring to was the so-called Beltway or DC snipers, um, which was from 2002, where um, Johann, John Muhammad, 41-year-old, and Lee Boyd Malvo, 17-year-old boy, it wasn't father and son, would drive around. They'd basically kitted out the back of their vehicle. They'd made a hole in the boot, and they'd park somewhere, put the barrel of yeah. the gun, and shoot people and drive around, etc. So I think that's who they're ref that, that Knudsen is, is referring to as another example of how you can create a lot of mass terror. Now, 
you know, even just telling that to people who are inspired towards violence, you know, even if they didn't join this whole program of his, might just decide to do that on their own yeah. as a way of causing havoc, et cetera, killing taxi drivers or whatever target they want to go for. Mm. But again, referring to previous people as examples of what you can do, but also perhaps as almost like more from the hero point of view. Look what these people have done. So we've actually got this WhatsApp post from the 16th of November, 2019. The Crusaders, National Christian Resistance, Resistance Movement, are really close, really close to hitting and governing this country. These murderers, rapists, torturers, and dark rubbish of the earth. They are going to die in their many thousands. Stand by me, influence others, use your firearm, walk out of your gate, and bring the numbers down. I take responsibility for anything you do under my banner. So this is a post by Harry Knisson from the 16th of November, 2019. Um, okay, so what happened next in Harry's plan? He's got his plan of attack. Um, he's making too much of a noise on social yeah. media. Um, the police of uh, who is the, what is the division within law enforcement locally that would be put on this case? So in terms of the investigation, that will be headed by the Crimes Against the State, or the CATS unit, which has a counterterrorism investigation unit headed up by Colonel Tolly Friertenberg, um, who was involved from the sort of days of the Burmach investigation I mentioned in the early 2000s. Uh, he's, he's received like five different medals for his role in preventing terrorism in sort of the democratic South Africa. So he's retiring, sadly, now at the end of uh, December this year. So crimes against the state, they have people that are focusing on any kind of you know, terrorist, whether it's left-wing, right-wing, middle-of-the-wing, etc. Um, but, for example, who would be infiltrating these groups might be anything from crime intelligence of the police to informers who get involved or would say, listen, I've heard some stuff, and then the police might say, okay, go, get, go sign up and join, and then you become our informer to tell us what's going on. So it could be civilians who are concerned, uh, or sometimes they're getting paid uh, for the information versus actually, you know, proper police crime intelligence individuals who are infiltrating. Okay. Um, and then what did what, what where did the investigation go from here? Right. So obviously they prepare their 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 background. They execute the arrest warrants that we mentioned earlier. They pick up those people. They find you know pipe you know pieces of pipe bombs, firearms, etc. Um, and as I said, four people in total were arrested at that time. Um, and, of course, now the next thing is to finalize the investigation. So they search the houses, they go through the computers, they check whatever else they can find um, and prepare for trial, But um, which then was finally concluded this year, about a couple months ago, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, now you tell me about tell me about Harry. I mean, okay. you met Harry, and you've got a you have a yeah. you always said you had a kind of a, a, a an amicable relationship mm. with him. Tell us about Harry as a, the guy. What? So how did I meet Harry when Gerard met Harry? <laughs> yeah. when Harry met Gerard. <laughs> when Harry met Gerard. Um, so I was asked in by the prosecutor um, in this particular uh, case to. Um, if I could do basically a sentencing report, pre-sentencing reports. So in other words, by then he'd been found guilty um, of these various charges against him. And, you know, they need somebody to come testify at sentencing. Like, what kind of a risk does he pose? You know, almost like to, to put it all together from a psychological point of view. So I was asked by the prosecutor to do that. Um, I was given, obviously, all the information, the video clips, everything from the case files that, that would help me formulate my opinion. And then, of course, I got the opportunity, because he agreed to, uh, to interview Harry. Now, Harry um, 
represented himself. Now, if anybody who is in the world of the legal environment, you'll know the last thing you do is represent yourself. Even if you're a lawyer, like I say, um, a person who represents himself as a fool for a lawyer. So even if you are a fully qualified lawyer, which he wasn't, to represent yourself is stupid. There's no other way to put it. You don't do that. Not, not of course, when you're facing terrorism charges, even more so. But Harry decides to represent himself because he felt, obviously, everybody else was not smart enough to represent him and didn't understand the case like he understood the case. And maybe it gives him a little bit of a platform as well yeah. for him to go out and air his views some more. And that, and also, this kind of fits into his personality where that sort of, I can do it better than anybody else. Okay. You know, whether you want to call it grandiose, narcissism, I'm not saying clinically on that diagnosable level, but I'm not surprised to some degree that he felt this, well, this way. Is, I, now I understand why you two were amicable. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Harry agreed to be interviewed by me, which I really, really appreciate because it's always great to just actually sit in front of the person that you have to write a report about. From a, As a psychologist, I get a better insight into what I'm dealing with. So I ended up having about a total of about seven hours of interview with five to seven hours with of Harry, which I recorded, which is he gave permission for me to record on video and audio. Uh, quite, quite phenomenal. So Harry himself, as I said, he was he was born in 1959. So he was when he was arrested, he was uh, 60-ish. Okay. Uh, yeah, my math is terrible. He's a when we. Yeah, he w he was born in Zimbabwe. His dad was Zimbabwean, um, and mom South African. Their parents divorced when he was three. She came back to South Africa and brought him and his brother, and she remarried, had five more kids with her with the new husband, etc. Um, stepfather then passes away when he's about 12 or 13. He says he was sent to English-speaking schools. Um, his stepfather insisted that they go to English-speaking schools, which he then claims, remember, this is what I'm telling you, it was out of his mouth. Um, he was then bullied by Afrikaans children because he was an Engelsman, he was an English kid. Um, he finished, left school at the age of 16 um, and began his Boilermaker apprenticeship in 1975. Um, then he was in 1977 conscripted into the South African Defense Force for one year. Um, he gave quite a grand version of what he was up to, but we know from military records he, he wasn't up to as grander things in terms of his military career as he was describing. I think if you were going to be a thoroughbred racist, you needed to have done military service in the 70s or 80s. That's not to say that everyone that did military service in the 70s or 80s was a racist or is a racist, but I certainly think that um, it helped a bunch of people. Yeah. So in January, and of course, that was part of that, those days, even when I was in the army in 1990, it was this indoctrination, the, the Roy Gefar, well, the Red yeah. Danger, was still, you know, they're trying to convince you that the ANC and everybody else are terrorists and bad and evil and communists and anti-God, so we need to get them out and keep them out. Well, I say it flippantly, but that, uh, you know, I really yeah, yeah. mean exactly. <laughs> I mean, there is a certain, I, I understand that there's a certain degree of programming going on there. So, yeah, so basically it does a year, and, and early Jan 1978, he's released from that one year of military service, goes back to his apprenticeship, goes back in 83, but is kind of released after three or four months, and basically if you speak to the, look at the military records, because he was complaining so much, and he had a wife and killed, and basically they just said, please go. Okay. <laughs> um, and then basically designated a strategic reserve. Now, that sounds very important, but really what it meant is, you know, you were so much of a problem that only in times of desperate war scenarios would we call you back up for military <laughs> service. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, so, again, he had a bit more flattering description of his military career, which we know from records was not the case. Sure. 
Um, but that's also, again, part of this, I think, personality that which we see is going to be very relevant to what we're, what we're seeing now. So he continues to work on various mines throughout Gauteng, eventually settles in Mpumalanga in 89, has four children in total, sadly, uh, two have deceased since, uh, so he has two children left. Okay. 93, he starts up a small congregation where he is the pastor. Uh, but also, if you speak to some people who attended these services, they said, you know, it was very much about him. Okay. You know, every service kind of, in a way, revolved back to him. So you have him telling fancy stories about his military career, being a pastor, which you're the center of it, he made it the center of attention. He actually, interestingly enough, served as a city councilor for the African Christian Democratic Party for 10 years, to 2001 to 2010. Now, if you Google that, that or maybe- That doesn't sound very yeah, racist it's, it's a very, <laughs> I mean, you can perhaps you can put it in very simplistic terms. It's seen as a black party, and I say that with my little air quotes in sure. my fingers, okay. because it's, it started up, I think, by Kent Meshwe, um, who's a reverend. It's It's, I would say, it's predominantly, I guess, most it's a lot of black people and again it's not a militant white power group yeah <laughs> so it's a very kind of mixed race organization so he was in the city council for 10 years okay. um now it's interesting it kind of does seem like harry himself um doesn't really have a, uh, elements of being a racist up until not too long before this whole issue that we're discussing when he starts button heads with the with the racists. Yeah. So kind of becomes a racist when he starts fighting with the racists. So what it seems, because like I said, there's newspaper clippings from the 80s, the, a newspaper called Die Vaderland, which is obviously a very Afrikaans, you know, the fatherland. I mean, think about yes, it. Yes. Yeah, it's a very Afrikaans, yes. where he's actually quoted as saying, look, we have to work, you know, we all have to live together. Heaven isn't divided by different races. We, if, you know, if you say okay. there's no issue of discrimination, you know, paint yourself black and you'll see very quickly what it's like to be a black person in South yes. Africa. So a lot of his earlier sayings actually were very, for the time, massively forward thinking um, and didn't, and I joined the ACDP, didn't have this racist, uh, racial undertone. So he's changed at some point, which we'll get into in a moment. Once again, please don't paint yourself black, okay? Or yep. white people listening. <laughs> Um, so, and this is not uncommon for people who end up becoming radicalized. There's something personal that happened to them that almost flips the switch. Yes, you can get people who are racist from a young age and just, they just go times 10 when they get older. But for some people, they do a, a switch flips after an event that's happened to them that often, whether you're an uh, ISIS type of extremist or otherwise, that kind of catalysts them down that pathway. So for Harry, it seems to be that he retired in 2015, 2014, 2015 from the mines, starts his own little engineering business, primarily aimed at providing services to the mines that he's just left. It goes pretty good until he takes on a BEE partner because he was struggling to get contracts. Okay. And he seems to literally have essentially given away half his company, given the bank account details, access codes to this young lady, and by all intents and purposes or counts, it does seem like she basically just hollowed out the company, walked away with all the money. Mm. And he and his son, who was involved in the business, and his ex-wife at this time, um, basically got were financially ruined by this. Okay. Um, and that seemed to be that turning point for him. It's like it's government, it's BEE, it's yeah. everything's against the white man. That kind of was the turning point for him in terms of him radicalizing. Yeah, which makes you realize what a fertile environment we have for radicalization in South Africa and the world right now, doesn't it? Because, yeah. you know, if you consider, I mean, I'm sure that there, you know, there are a heck of a lot of people pointing fingers at the government, for example, in South Africa. And in South Africa, where race is such a charged issue, um, 
I think it's probably easy for a lot mm. of people to boil it down, you know, to really kind of um, dress it up and race it in their racist and thoughts. And let's say, for example, I started, I had a company and it's, I thought, well, I'm going to get a lot more business if I do take on a, an BE partner. So I bring in a partner, give them 51%, and I get screwed out of the company by some fashion or, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, you know, I can either start to blame the government and BE and race, or I can say that person was an asshole yeah. who screwed me over. Yeah. You know, and, and kind of keep race out of it. So I think, again, it, it can go a couple ways. got his education so again this comes again elements of his personality creeping out here he claims now if you recall correctly he left school when he was 16 so he didn't finish high school sure um yes he did those qualifying the boilermaker which is an n something etc but then he claims that he has a bachelor's degree in business management um through a to trinity university based in the u.s he then claims that he had a master's degree in theology from therapon university based in the u.s virgin islands and also a PhD from them. Um, now, if you go onto their website of Thera Therapon, it's T-H-E-R-A-P-O-N, like therapy, but without the Y and O-N at the end. It does exist, um, and it's based in the U.S. Virgin Islands and the Caribbean, but it also says that, uh, you know, Therapon is not eligible to participate in the federal student loan financial aid program. It's not authorized to accept the GI Bill. So in other words, if, if the military, American military, they'll often pay for your studies but not at this university. It's unable to guarantee its acceptance of its degrees in other post-secondary institutions, which means they're saying, look, we, we're not, we can't say that if you do a master's here, you'll be able to do doctorate anywhere else in the world mm. because the university might not recognize it. Um, corporations are not required to recognize degrees from Therapon University. So basically, yeah, I, I personally wouldn't study through these people because it creates the impression that you can do it, and nobody's going to take this as a proper qualification. Sure. Um, and, you know, and you get a lot of these other universities throughout the world, some of them in India, some of them in various parts of the world, where kind of you get the impression is if you just pay your money, you'll, they'll send you a degree. Um, not necessarily that simple, but yeah. it's not quite up to standards and expectations of if you went to University of Pretoria and, you know, sure. Wits and, and other recognized internationally recognized universities. Well, I haven't told you this. My psychology doctorate is arriving next week. <laughs> So, so we haven't even got confirmation that he actually did even do these things through them, let alone the, the questionability about how, how, how recognizable the qualification would be. He's never been able to produce that, those qualifications. They didn't find them at his house. You know, we were trying to contact Therapon to say, did this guy actually ever register as a student? Just even that, you know, did he do anything? So that's questionable. So he regularly refers to himself as Dr. Knussen, which, again, I think points a lot towards his personality. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Look, yeah, he's obviously very focused on branding and kind of get it, you know, painting the right image for his for his hopefully masses and masses of followers who are yeah. going to be be uh, and there's going to be enough of them to overthrow the army. Mm. So, so let's now look at what what did he say though once he was charged with these offences yes. and his kind of line of argument was, you know, 
at the end of 2018, I, I kind of started to come into conflict with these various right-wing organizations. Um, they were saying, you know, there were service delivery protests, and he, they were all saying, we need to get all the people out of here. And he said, well, why? You know, the service delivery protests aren't against you as Joe Citizen. It's against the city council and the government. So why do you need to be evacuating people out of all of these towns? Uh, and kind of that kind of sparked off some of the bad blood between him and these organizations, mm -hmm. which again kind of ended up him almost being very vocal against these organizations. Yeah. Um, and he kind of says that, you know, I actually am not a racist. Um, all these things I was saying and doing, these videos I made, the traveling around the country, was really just to peel off the right wing. I was trying to sort of rile them up, make them angry, get them upset, but there was no you know, emotional backing behind the things I was saying. I was never trying to implement these things and put them into place. I was never trying to actually genuinely instigate a revolution. And I would have told everybody a day or two before this set date of 2019, Black Friday, that actually it's all called off, everybody just leave it, it's fine. Because I just wanted to really stoke them up and make them angry and pee them off. Okay. Which, when you start to look at how he did it and the extent that he did it and how much time it took of him, mm. it's the court ultimately said that's a bloody load of nonsense yeah and if you look at the assessment i did you'll see that he has a lot of the features of someone who generally was going through the various radicalization processes so very simplistic and i kind of way kind of i would have had more respect for harry if he said yeah that was my plan yeah. this is what i believed in these are my principles mm -hmm. my religious views etc but now going into court and saying oh it's just a joke firstly all your all your people following you're going to go what yeah, I don't You're un kidding? undermines your future you were You were lying to us? You weren't yeah. serious? That's the one response. Or they could say, geez, dude, you abandoned your principles quite quickly when you thought it didn't suit you anymore to try and hopefully convince the court that this is not so serious and you shouldn't be sent to a heavy, stiff um, um, sentence. Yeah, um, yeah so... So what are those warning behaviors that you, you kind of you refer to? Right, so, so how do we assess, In your actually, is, yeah. is this guy a real concern? Um, what is trap 18 so yeah so there's the only assessment tool to determine how far down the line is someone and are they actually on that pathway to committing a violent act because we can all have extreme thoughts not saying extremist thoughts mm -hmm. but views on the world the government politics religion race etc you know if i see someone in my work environment who i knew was muslim but you know dressed in western clothing etc didn't have a beard but i know he's muslim and then what happens if he comes to work dressed out in more sort of traditional uh, islamic garb grows the beard do i have to now worry about him or is this just someone naturally expressing their religious beliefs you know and that's that's partly why these tools were developed um that when do we objectively determine whether someone's behavior is now stepping beyond the realm of naturally expressing legally protected beliefs in my religion or whatever philosophies I have, and when is it actually indicative of, whoa, there's something we have to perhaps intervene here with. So the TRAP-18, which is Terrorist Radicalization Assessment Protocol, was developed by Dr. Reed Malloy. Now, Reed Malloy is probably one of the most well-known forensic psychologists in the world, definitely in the United States. But he's also a big wig when it comes to the whole issue of terrorist radicalization and, and, and in the world of threat assessment, which, as I said, is kind of the world I'm delving around in um, a couple since 2016. Hmm. So basically, it's, it's something that's used by mental health, intelligence services, law enforcement, security professionals to kind of 
gather data to allow us to say, do we have to worry about this person or not? Um, so it's a structured guideline for the type of things we need to look at so that we, again, are, are objective. So we can say, no, actually, this person's totally fine. We don't have to worry about this person. Yeah. Or, yes, we do have to worry. So it's not only about trying to find someone is a problem. It's about also proving that someone isn't the problem yes. and we don't have to focus on them. So it's an objective assessment. Yeah. You know, research-based by looking at various other people who became radicalized and engaged in violent acts versus those that don't. So it's not just a thumb suck. It's, it's evidence-based. And it kind of looks at 18 different risk factors um, eight of them, which are kind of close to which we typically see close towards an actual violent attack taking place, and the other ten are kind of more just general, long-standing issues that we want to look at, and that's what I used to look at Harry to also say to the court, no, actually this wasn't just talk, talk, talk. It was actually serious cons concerning behaviour because it the types of thing we saw is what this tool talks about. So it looks at sort of. Um, uh, let me jump into it, what we call pathway warning behavior. You know, does this person have a grievance? Does he express violent ideation? Is, are there indications that he's planning and preparing uh, for these types of things? Uh, do we have indications that he's trying to check out the security at the venue where this attack might take place, uh, et cetera? So that's what we call um, um, pathway behavior. That comes from the pathway to intended violence, that mm -hmm. people planning violence typically go through s certain steps and phases no matter what kind of violence you're, trying to, you're planning on doing, we see these typical steps in this pre-planned violence. So we, do we see elements of those? And then do we see things in indications of fixation? In other words, this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for this person. It's taking up more of their life, their thoughts. Their, their, it's, it causes an, an, an accompanying deterioration in their social life and their occupational life because they become so fixated on this issue that other aspects of their life start to suffer. Mm. And we see this, you know, he's, he starts by spending a little bit of time on these in January 2019, but by the time we get to June, he, as he said in his own words, most of my day was taken up mm. with this issue, with the Facebook page, with the WhatsApp, you know, voice notes and the, and the, and the messages I was typing consumed him, yeah. um, et cetera. Then we kind of would want to look at, um, so that's a fixation. Identification, this is very important. Do we see this person almost has this desire to become what they call like a pseudo-commando or a, a warrior mentality, or, you know, some close identification with weapons or military or law enforcement, or I identify with previous attackers or assassins. It's almost like my identity becomes this warrior for a cause. You know, I'm a champion for this cause. And his cause was, you know, the rights of the white people and God gave Africa to us white people type of thing. And we see it, you know, he, he was wearing these homemade military uniforms. And we saw that with Anders Breivik, the, the um, was it from in, in, in Norway who planted those bombs, bomb outside the parliament and went into that island and shot a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. He had his little homemade uniforms. So Harry, as you watch some of the videos, mm -hmm. he's wearing, you know, his own little design for a beret, you know, with almost looks like a paratrooper's emblem on the front, but it's got a cross and mm -hmm. etc. And he had his own little rank insignia uh, that was his that he designed and this uniform that he developed, etc. And he kind of gives himself this military rank, refers to himself as the first knight. Um, so here we quite clearly see that he's identifying as some kind of a warrior for some cause. Um, and that's very clear. And he says, I was appointed by God. And he refers to himself, I'm a warrior. Yeah. So that ticking that identification box very, very clearly. Um, do we see an, a burst of energy coming close to the date of the attack? We do. It's again, it's, it's the stuff is consuming his time. 
meetings, meetings with his little senior command, uh, urging people, please, we're co it's close to that date. I think the WhatsApp you read out from October is like, we're nearly there. Yeah, you know, yeah, we need yeah, a few yeah, more yeah. people to join us. Like you can tell there's something, you know, building up. And then this leakage. Now, typically what you see, leakage, you see with your school shooters, where afterwards when people start to look at their social media or speak to people, it's like, oh, yeah, he, he sent me this thing saying, pretty soon I'm going to do something. Or social media, he's posting things that retrospectively you go, oh, my goodness, that actually is a warning sign. Here he's doing it very obviously through the various posts and, and, and groups that he's, that he's managing. Um, last resort, you know, is some kind of indication that time is running out, that we have to do this soon, some desperation. And yes, he actually says, in one, and I'm going to read one of his quotes, time is running out to save our country. I ask you, wherever you may be, contact me, join me. I have an attack plan, not a waiting, a defensive plan. I have an attack plan, but I need you. Another quote, he says, I don't want to wait. I don't want to see what the enemy is planning to do to us. I keep saying, when we are ready for the enemy, it's too late, because then they are armed to the T. So they're kind of like, come on, we have, we have nothing left. This is the last choice. This is the last chance, the only option, that kind of pressure to, it must be done now. Um, and then we kind of, so that's the kind of ones that we typically see very close to the attack actually taking place. And, and he's ticked most of those boxes. So if you were just verbally planning these things with no intention behind it, you wouldn't be seeing a lot of those collateral things. Absolutely. Um, and it's all out in the world, isn't it? Um, yeah. um, you know, the, the advice is if, you run, if you're a Harry, just do the stuff in your bedroom and put up, you know, <laughs> post, your, post your post to your bedroom wall and leave it at that. Yeah. So, so the assessment, what are then the yeah. conclusions of this assessment, yeah. Joe? So, so those are the, pr the, the, the main ones that tell us this guy's close towards actually doing something, which fits in with what the other information is telling us and which contradicts what he's saying. But then the, um, so a few of the other characteristics which were important, which he had, was you know, personal grievance we typically see in these radicalized people. So his personal grievance was, I lost my business, was I financially ruined by BEE, in other words, in his view, the government, which in other words, in his view, black people. But then we also have this moral outrage. So in other words, personal grievance is something that happened to me. Moral outrage is some issue that I associate with, although it's not happened to me. And he kind of said, you know, white people are being raped and murdered on farms and this, that, and the other. So not things that have happened to him, but he's like got this identification with another group, which in this case was other white people who are facing these challenges. A good example of this would be like what's happening in Ukraine. I'm morally outraged by Russia's behavior in Ukraine, what they're doing. I think it's horrific. I think it's wrong. If you look at my Twitter posts, I kind of have the Ukrainian colors. I'm not Ukrainian. Uh, I'm not married to Ukrainian. Uh, the Russians haven't done something to me, but I'm outraged by this aspect. And this is, again, you see that here. He's morally outraged about white people and things that are happening to white people, not things that have necessarily happened to him. So you've got the personal thing, what happened to me personally, the moral outrage about the government is against white people, the black man is against white people, the laws are against white people, etc. Um, and this ideology, yes, it's, it's his ideology is a mixture of religious ideology, political and race uh, ideology. Um, and what's interesting we often see with these people is that they, they tried to join a right-wing group and were rejected. Now, Harry was rejected by all these right-wing groups because they kind of felt that he's his ideas or his thoughts or his comments were, you know, they don't like them. But he also at one point was asked to be the head of one of another existing right-wing group, which he said, okay, sure. And then about a month or two later, they booted him out. And that's quite common with these individuals who engage in extremist behavior is that at some point they were actually rejected by other right-wing groups. What, is he too extreme for these right? Because, I mean, what he's, what he's saying sounds like it would be quite popular with most white right-wing groups. 
But I think he has a point that a lot of these right-wing groups aren't there okay. to try and finally attack the government. They just don't want to be criticized. Okay. It's like they don't like Harry's criticism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and then, of course, the, the reliance on the virtual community. We saw that his Facebook posts, WhatsApp, and other means um, thwarting of occupational goals. Yes, his business was scuppered by what he says is BEE. Mm. So we have all of these boxes being ticked on various levels, um, and and indicating, I mean, whether you did this during the investigation phase or now, that this guy genuinely believes these issues. He's got all the typical, typical signs we see in a radicalized person who's stepping close towards doing something violent. Yeah. And that was the, basically the, the summary of my views was that we have him ticking all the boxes. Therefore, you can't accept his view that actually I was just kidding everybody and I was just trying to rile everybody up. Sorry, no, sunshine what you've done does not match someone who has just been a paper warrior. You were trying to be a real warrior. Yes, absolutely. And also, <laughs> what's kind of Scuppers' argument is we found videos, victory videos. So these were videos that were going to be released after they're successful because it's basically, for example, him dressed up in his military outfit saying, we have taken over the country, I'm declaring martial law, stay in your houses, blah, blah. It's like, well, why would you need to have victory videos if you were never planning on actually implementing this in the first place? Absolutely. <laughs> and I kind of said that the, the bigger danger, let's say even if that was true, that he was just really trying to rile people up. The problem is, can you not see the danger of that? You've gotten a whole bunch of people arrested with you who are following your thoughts. You know, there were at least three other people who were arrested and now convicted. Um, if you were joking, they weren't. And how do you stop this? Your videos that are out there are going to be on in the internet for, for s decades for other people to watch, to people to be inspired by what you have to say. And just because you might have said, hey, guys, actually, I'm canceling this whole thing two days before the attack, a lot of what happens if people didn't decide to stop? And they thought, screw that. I'm going to go ahead and do my own thing in my own area. Mm -hmm. So if you're not able to realize the danger of you inspiring others, when you might not be serious, but they're taking you seriously, that's a big concern for me that you can't realize, A, I'm getting a lot of people into a lot of trouble, and B, a lot of these people might just continue, irrespective of me, I'm not necessarily that important. Maybe it's also a bit of a narcissistic view that you're so important that when you stop, everybody's going to stop. Mm. You know, you've, been, you've, you've literally have 700 people on your groups. How many other people who aren't inspired by what you have to say who might continue doing whatever they want to do along these lines, having been inspired by you? And, and that kind of, it's like a level of, don't you have that insight that even if you were joking, which you weren't, you're inspiring other people to do stuff? How, how is there not a bit of a, how does a case like this not kind of threaten a potential kind of, you know, flood of these types Absolutely. of things? Because, because there I mean, are lots of people saying, saying, saying yeah. pretty nuts stuff on the internet all the time. Absolutely. And a lot of people who, to a greater or lesser degree, share some of the, the, con the issues that Harry's raising, that the country's in a terrible state. Look at it falling apart. Nudge, nudge. It's black people who are all to, at fault. You know, white people are being put down and pushed out of society. A lot of people have these views and are going to relate to what is being said on on various levels. Yeah. Um, so it's fertile ground for just nudging people a bit further and a bit further and a bit further into passively or actively supporting this kind of mindset. It's kind of crazy. The sentence. Um, yeah. You're just showing me the sentence. I mean, the sentence is is is. Considering that nobody was killed, yep. that there's no singular victim or what have you, yeah. what was his sentence? So, Shit. interestingly enough, um, as I said, I testified at sentencing. 
he cross-examined me. What's interesting is that when he cross-examined me, because obviously he was representing himself, he could, he said, you know, you're a very qualified person and I don't agree with any, I disagree with anything in your, in your report, but surely you must agree that this was, this, this was a terrible plan and it can't be serious. And he was still trying to maintain this whole issue of this is a joke, where are all the other hundreds of people? Why aren't they being arrested? Um, surely you, you can see this is this would never have worked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was still trying to maintain that until the judge kind of said, you so, know. Harry, you're in South Africa. Yeah. You can't be a spouse in these hateful ideas yeah. in public and ticking so many boxes on the Americans' assessment plan. Um, sorry, yeah. sorry, buddy. So the, the judge actually had to sh shut him down because they said, look, Mr. Knudsen, you can only cross-examine the witness on things that he's just testified about. You can't ask his opinion on unrelated, well, not so unrelated, but on other issues to try and, it's too late anyway, trying to convince the court that you weren't serious because you've been found guilty of these acts. Anyway, so he got very upset about that. And so uh, ultimately well, I'm, sure, his I'm sure he got <laughs> upset with his sentence. Yeah. But ultimately he got two life sentences and 21 years imprisonment. Now... What's interesting, I didn't realize this until the, the, the colonel and, and, his, and the investigating officer told me, is that since 1994, look, pre-94, we had people sentenced to death for terrorism activities and life I mean, on a regular basis for their liberation yeah. activities. Yeah. But since 94, this was the first person to be sentenced to life for terrorism-related activities. So how do you feel about this sentence? Um, look, I do think that if you're planning to engage in terrorist activities, and where, where people's lives were going to be put either directly or indirectly could have ki been killed, I've got no problem that you go to jail for life. Sure. Now, what's interesting is I, once he was sentenced, I just, I, I, there was an article on News24, you know, that online news platform, yes. and I just retweeted it. I didn't give my comments or my thoughts saying he was sentenced to blah, blah, blah. And one of the guys underneath said, replied as in, in a comment, Harry Knudsen is a true leader. It will continue. Mm. So... These sentiments are out there. He, for whatever reason, good or bad or whatever, he is now perhaps a martyr figure um, for people who still share these these sentiments. And again, is, is, is this guy who posted this, was that one of the 700 or many other people that had been inspired? Like I said, the danger of Harry, even he didn't think it's true, which I don't believe, um, that he wasn't going to go ahead with this, which I don't believe. This kind of shows you that the message is inspiring others. It's pretty incredible that in the last 30 years, we haven't had more actual incidents. Would you put that down to the fact that we're good at nipping them in the bud? That, that law enforcement is aware of where these radical groups yep. are and that they are monitored enough and they are kind of kept an eye on enough that they don't cross the line yep. into acting on their, on their ideas? Yeah, I think that the, the right wingers are particularly easy to infiltrate. Um, the, the more sort of really aren't you know, they hard to spot in the bush <laughs> in their camo gear? <laughs> Sorry. I think the sort of the ones were perhaps are a little bit more difficult, although we have had some good, you know, pre event identification of these amongst your sort of ISIS type. And I'm going to just say ISIS type, meaning any sort of extremist yeah. person who kind of ascribes the general philosophies that, that ISIS and those crowds are into. Um, we've had some really good investigations and pre preemptive arrests of such individuals. But my fear is that if you look at the crimes against the state team of people who are doing the counterterrorism investigations, top-notch people, really brilliant, very experienced, but in the next three or four years, most of them are retiring. Yeah. And I don't see that, they've been, that there's been As this efforts by discussed. this police yes. to 
bring in the new group of people that could be groomed and understand. So once these people leave, all that institutional knowledge buggers off. So the same problem we discuss at so many levels yep. across no law here. enforcement locally, across the police, a, uh, a, a loss of institutional knowledge, not an appropriate passing on of that yep. knowledge to the next generation. Because these groups of people, I mean, they've been interacting with the FBI and all sorts of other law enforcement agencies. They've been on amazing training courses offered by various law enforcement agencies in counterterrorism. They've built up the local knowledge and understanding of these groups of people, who's doing what, when they leave. If we don't very quickly appoint talented people into the unit that these people can mentor, and like I said, Colonel Friedenberg is retiring in at the end of this month and end of December. And, you know, they kind of said to him, hey, we, would you like to stay on as a contract? And he said, well, you know, if you promote me, uh, which he should have been a brigadier long ago, I'll stay on for another two years on a contract. And they said, no. Because then he also said, well, also no from my side. They probably said it exactly like that as well. You know, no, we'll be okay, thanks. We'll do fine. But then I kind of wonder how it. serious are you about the future of our country when it comes to terrorism if you're not prepared to retain someone for a two-year contract? at what I would say is at the least what you should be should have been actually remunerating this guy for many years already. I mean, like I said, he's from the days of the Burmacht in the early 2000s. Mm. I mean, he's gotten five medals, I think, I think it's five medals for counterterrorism, you know, protecting the, the country. So you're gonna give him lots of medals, but hey, he's been a colonel for how long? Uh, it's like, I don't know where you guys... <laughs> you know, if you want to have a fertile environment for crime to thrive, then retaining institutional knowledge is not a priority, is it? Yeah. Which is a scary, scary thought. Yeah. Gerard, where do we kind of wrap up this conversation? Because we have been having a long conversation about this one. Um, I hope you guys have stuck around for the whole, for the duration. And I'm sure our editor will have trimmed some of it out. But we've certainly had a long chat about this. Where does this kind of take us, this conversation? Where do we, Harry's in jail for two life sentences mm -hmm. he'll have parole at 25 years and potentially see the light of day again um, well i mean he'll be very old uh, as oh, i said he's born 60 in already 59. yes so he may not so harry's possibly in jail for literally for life then this so. it's that thing of the what we've mentioned before of people that are kind of from earlier in your career there are going to be lots of people coming up for parole, for parole yeah, and um, we're going to be seeing some interesting people being i mean we've seen two interesting Morne Haramsa yeah. and Val Janus. Um, released this year. I mean, you're starting to see the reality of it. These things we talk about in the podcast, and it may sound all kind of yeah. doom and gloom, but the reality is, is that the parole system works a certain way, and people will find their way back into society. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, we're w in a country where we've got economic issues and just social issues and what have you, and yeah. just you know, it's hard to keep the lights on and keep the water yeah. running in taps, and there's still a you know, a huge, you know, the, the widest wealth gap in the world, um, or, you know, one of the widest wealth gaps in the world. It's hard to see. And then, like you say, a loss of institutional knowledge, not enough new people coming in with these specialist, not with the specialist knowledge and, and this historical knowledge. It's hard to see how these kinds of issues don't become more prevalent and how these types of groups don't become more stoked and more active and mm. more present and relevant in our lives and uh, like you say the more and more things do fall apart in society like you say we go from having load shedding once a day to four times a day as the norm 
and water has now become an issue. Water shedding, we've heard that being raised because of collapsing infrastructure. It gets very easy to take that anger that people have towards the government and swivel it a little bit to not just the government but towards black people because they're in charge yeah. or this group or that group. So I fear we're going to see on f across the board a lot of people getting more angry about the state of the country yeah. uh, and becoming more radicalized in what needs to be done about it. Absolutely. And that might be twisted through religion, race, uh, tribe, ugh, anything by people who want to twist it. Well, and what we do know about radicalization is that radicalization thrives in countries where there's a massive divide between the haves, which is very few, and the have-nots, which is a huge, when you don't have a big middle class. So if you look at what's going on in northern Mozambique, a lot of these people don't really give a damn about sort of the extremist religious side of it, but there is no government functioning in those areas. Yeah. And these organizations, ISIS or whatever, offspins, are kind of saying, well, we have a system. We're here for you. Where's your government? Look around you. Yeah. What have they done for you lately? We can give you structure. We can give you this. We can give you that. We can give you something to belong to. Fight for it. And they subscribe to those views, not because they necessarily subscribe to all the religious side of it, but because, well, right, well, here is somebody actually here to offer us something. So that's one of the dangers where you have big polarity between those up there, those down there, and nothing in between. So if you want to prevent these things from taking hold is develop your economy, that you develop a middle class. Exactly. Um, nobody wants to radically revolutionize things when you've got a massive, comfortable middle class who's got a car in the garage, what the American was, a, what the American president, a chicken in the pot and a, and a car in the garage, where your kids are going to school in a decent school and it's safe. Yeah. People don't really care about the rest. Yeah. But when you don't have that, that's when these radical groups are making much easier to take hold. Yeah, and acknowledge your kind of the historical reality of different societies and different cultures and different peoples, and that there are great imbalances that have been created over the last few hundred years. That whether you were driving a slave ship or not 300 years ago, you know, maybe it was a distant relative, and you've been an extraordinarily liberal and open-minded person all your life who believes in diversity and. Uh, all of those good things. The truth of the matter is, is that we do have a responsibility to, at the very least, acknowledge the imbalances and at the most to try to kind of um, uh, consciously, uh, in consciously practice um, um, addressing those imbalances mm. anyway. Okay, so in these cases, I always like to acknowledge the, the, the real role players. I mean, I just played a small role in this case right at the end related to sentencing, which I think helped. Um, but in this case, the investigating officer was... Uh, Finally not trying to take all the credit for something. <laughs> so in this case, the investigating officer was Captain Yaku Kukumur, an expert in counterterrorism investigations, um, did a fantastic job. I mean, to pull all this together, all the, it's so many facets, a lot of information to put it together for a court case to win beyond a reasonable doubt. So congratulations to, to Captain Yaku Kukumur and also the prosecutor in this case. The lead prosecutor was Ansi Fenter, advocate Ansi Fenter, and again did a really good job of, of presenting this to court under difficult circumstances because, again, you had uh, Harry Knudsen, General Knudsen, who was representing himself, which is always difficult for a prosecutor because you not only have to interact with the accused person, which you typically don't once they're uh, arrested, mm. but also that person is a legal representative. So you kind of, on the one hand, you're trying to get this guy behind bars, but you also have to interact with them because they're the legal counsel. So very, very difficult circumstances. So I'd just like to acknowledge specifically those two people and also Colonel Tolly Freichtenberg, which I've mentioned throughout the 
this conversation, who is going to be retiring at the end of the month, head of counterterrorism investigations in South Africa, for his also oversight of this. And of course, um, as I said, the second in charge or second counsel with Advocate Ansi Fenter, Advocate Derek Rowles, who also was her co-prosecutor co and, and the role that, that they both played in this. So just, again, the, the credit should go to them. Uh, and of course, the people that testified as witnesses to help bring this case to a conclusion. So we have the second coolest kookamur in the country there. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Jared. Um, an interesting case. Uh, certainly um, one of those cases that... Uh, Surprisingly, we don't have a lot more of them to talk about in South Africa, but a good thing. And hopefully we don't end up having too many more of them to talk about either. But um, certainly makes you think about um, how far you are willing to take your ideas mm. and um, how far you should. Just be careful out there, guys. Be careful on th in the media environment that we live in. You never know. Um, I mean, this is a two life sentences. That's mm. it's a it's a big sentence. Yeah, so just be um, careful about what you say on social media. You might say it in a fit of anger or emotion. Um, yes. But, you know, if you're espousing violent thoughts and ideas or even retweeting other people's violent thoughts and ideas, in terms of the law, those are now yours. So just, you know, hold back. Think about it before you post. Um, take a bit of a break. And let's just all try to get along, man. You know, we're all, you know, yes, we all come from different backgrounds and we, you know, have different advantages or disadvantages in life but um you know our brains do allow us to be able to kind of find a common ground if we apply them properly thank you gerard it's been a lovely discussion we'll be back next week um we got some great cases coming up in the weeks to come well we're hoping we will be back next week we will be back next week um with another discussion um we've got some great cases coming up and um, hopefully some great guests as well so do stay tuned to the podcast please do follow us on social media have a listen to the podcast on youtube share your favorite link on any of the podcast platforms that you listen to us on this has been a very lengthy one if you've stuck with us you know some weeks we'll just babble on for a couple of hours and um, if you want to listen you can listen um, but certainly a very interesting case and one of those issues that is you know such a such a big reality in south africa for us all and um, hopefully we can start to um, to just put all of that behind us you know <laughs>